to the Right on Point podcast with Wayne Rohde. The Right on Point podcast is a candid discussion of your legal rights, civil liberty ramifications, legalities of possible mandates of COVID vaccines, and actions by our federal government and state governments. Plus exploring the untouchable topics within the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, the PrEP Act, and the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for being here and watching the Right on Point podcast today. I hope everybody had a safe and reflecting Memorial Day. Think about our veterans and our active military who proudly served our country. And before we dive into the program today, and it's going to be a real good one, um, I want to mention a couple upcoming events here in the great white north of uh, Minnesota. Uh, People might know the name Aaron Suri, an attorney who sued the FDA to um, get the tens of thousands of documents of the Pfizer approvals. um, And many people are looking at him now. Well, he's going to be up here actually in River Falls, uh, Wisconsin, which is about 30 minutes east of Minneapolis, uh, Sunday, June 26th. If you want tickets and everybody who wants to buy a ticket, bring 10 friends. It's going to be fun. It's going to be an enjoyable afternoon with Aaron Surrey. WisconsinUnitedForFreedom.org or VaccineSafetyCouncilMinnesota.org for tickets. And the other event, um, which is an annual event, it's always been, it's fun, it's huge, and it's inspiring, is the Global Health Freedom Summit in Alexandria, Minnesota, October 1st. Headlined by Del Bigtree, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, Dr. Larry Poleski, Dr. Scott Jensen, who is running for Minnesota governor, Dr. Bob Zajac, and many others will be attending. And I understand that Dr. uh, Peter McCullough will have a book signing either with the event or the day after. His new book, The Courage to Face COVID-19, was released uh, a couple weeks ago. For tickets to that event, it's uh, wellnessmyway.org. And on your checkout, uh, type in uh, Right on Point or ROP and get discounted tickets. And for today, uh, this is something I've been wanting to discuss um, about this massive FDA uh, agency for quite some time. Maybe for over a year, I've been thinking about how to get into the FDA, the mess is what I can uh, call it. FDA drug approval process, the emergency use authorization process, the FDA's approval of Pfizer's community, or I can't pronounce it correctly all the time, so I call it Cinderella, and the wordsmithing of legal distinct and interchangeable from their letter in August of 2021 to Pfizer, plus a whole host of other blunders and confusion, and then the black box warnings. So I'm going to be conducting a lot of interviews and programs over the next few weeks to a month with leading experts regarding the mess we call the FDA. Which brings us to today's program and our guest, Kim Witzak. Um, I first met her a few weeks ago in person at the um, Minnesota State Capitol. We both spoke at a press conference 
regarding um, the COVID vaccine injured persons and a proposed bill of rights for COVID vaccines. I've known of her for a few years now and her advocacy, but I was really excited to finally meet her in person. And we've been trying to work out our schedules to get her onto the program. And I wanted to kick off this review of the FDA process with her. There's no one better to start this thing. So uh, welcome to the program and happy birthday, Kim Witzak. How are you doing today? I'm great. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to be a part of your program. And like you said, it was really a pleasure to finally meet you in person uh, and have the opportunity to come and talk to you about what I love to talk about, which is FDA, drug safety, and all things, um, you know, FDA. And because it ultimately has an impact on what you and I, as the general public, and it impacts us every day. And I don't think most people ever really give it much thought. Well, they don't. Um, It's just, we, we take things for granted, or we just, it doesn't, if it doesn't personally affect us. Now, with many of us, our advocacy in these areas, um, unfortunately, is born from tragic events, whether it's a child we lost uh, to a childhood vaccine or severely injured, in my case, with my son, um, and other people maybe lost loved ones. For you, you paid an ultimate price, and that is your, uh, your husband of many years and father of your children. Tell us what happened, and then where are you with your advocacy? Because this has been a you have a strong message to uh, give to everyone else. Great. Well, I like to call myself the accidental advocate. Um, I call myself the accidental advocate because I never would have chose to go down this path of advocacy work that I am in today. Mm-hmm. And it started, as you said, personal. And a lot of times that's where things, and when you come to that point of like demanding change, it happens when something hits you personally. And for a lot of people, like I probably never would have paid attention to this until that one fateful day on August 6, 2003, I got a call from my dad that my husband of almost 10 years was found dead hanging at age 37 from the rafters of our garage. And it was like that moment, I have to back up to where that started. But like, first of all, my husband loved life. He was full of life. He he had just started his dream job with a startup company um, about a couple months earlier and was having trouble sleeping which is not uncommon for entrepreneurs. Here's a guy that needed eight hours of sleep. Um, So he went to go see his family doctor and was given samples, an antidepressant, Zoloft, for insomnia, Mm. and was told that it would take the edge off and help him sleep. Mm -hmm. Well, the first, you know, the sample pack that he came home with um, automatically doubled the dose There were no warnings at that time. I don't even know if Woody actually even knew that it was an antidepressant, but he definitely did not know to be, you know, to be closely watched when first started going. In fact, I was out of the country the first three weeks he was on this drug on an um, advertising production, which is my um, profession. Mm -hmm. And I will never forget... I came home and I was back from my trip and I was really excited to see him, but I'll never forget. He walked through our back door in his blue dress shirt and he had an undershirt underneath completely drenched. 
and he fell to the floor with his hands like a vice, like this, Kim, you got to help me. I don't know what's happening. My head's outside my body looking in and he's just bawling. And I was like, I'd been married to him for 10 years. I've never seen that behavior before. We calmed him down and he called his doctor and his doctor said, you got to give it four to six weeks for the drug to kick in. And Woody lasted a to- another week, so a total of five weeks on this drug, the only drug that he was on. And that no one should ever have to get the call that I got. And no one should ever have to find what my dad had to find because I thought my husband was just having trouble sleeping. So I'm like, hey, can you go check on him? No one should ever have to see that. And um, I still look back, and it's almost 19 years this um, coming August. But, you know, here's a guy that we both traveled. There were no, you know, he didn't leave a note. He didn't leave anything. But he, there were two, as I say, kind of notes or signs that night that he was found. Um, the, number one, our, the coroner that came to the house called and asked if he was on any medication. And I didn't know exactly what it was. But she goes, oh, wait, there's a bottle of Zoloft. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's it, you know, sitting on our kitchen counter. And she said, I'm going to take it with us. It might have something to do with his death. That was clue number one. Clue number two was a front page article in our newspaper, the Star Tribune, that said the UK finds link between antidepressants and suicide in teens. And that literally, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to get home because I was out of town on another production. But my brother-in-law Googled Zoloft and suicide and was stunned at what was known at that the FDA had hearings back in 1991 when it was just Prozac and um, the link between suicide and violence. So that really, um, that's the backstory, and it really started with um, a deep knowing that there is no possible way that my husband, like that, he he was still run, like he was running that day be, that he died because he was pretty anal. He kept a running journal of his how much miles were on his shoes, mm-hmm. and because um, he was a big runner, and and I intuitively, in the deepest deepest part of me, knew something didn't add up. And then you take those two other little signs that night, and that really became my mission almost within like a month after that. It um, started heading out to D.C., and I like had a mission to get black box warnings put on these drugs because there were no warnings. And again, I go back. If the FDA had done their job in 1991... I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have been there because Woody would have actually known because he would have probably said, why am I getting a drug for um, I can't sleep and you're giving me a drug that is an antidepressant. So there's a lot of things and a lot of lessons in his story. But really the biggest one was, um, you know, how what I thought was the FDA and, you know, we never once questioned the drug because, you know, it was FDA approved. Mm-hmm. given to him by his doctor, and sold and advertised as safe and effective. And boy, did I learn a whole different story of mm-hmm. what all those things mean. So, Well, safe and effective, you know, you being in the advertising business, that's just nothing but a good marketing slogan, and there's no no proof behind it. Now, 
Correct me if I'm wrong. You were appointed as a consumer representative uh, to the uh, an FDA committee, Drug Safety Committee, correct? Correct. Um, I am the consumer representative on the uh, Psychopharmologic Drugs Advisory Committee. So this is the drugs, um, the psychiatric drugs. It's basically the same committee that I look back at 1991 if they had done their job. So now kind of coming full circle, I'm now um, a consumer rep which really means that I represent the public and the public mm-hmm. point of view sitting on this advisory committee. Okay. Now you mentioned black box warnings. Now um, you led the charge to get a black box warning on Zoloft. Was there such a thing for other drugs at the time or was it just Zoloft that you led the charge on? Um, it was for um, the the charge was really for all antidepressants. So okay. this would be Paxil, Zoloft, um, uh, Prozac, um, the SSRIs, which were the new class of antidepressants that came in, and they did not have a black box warning. And you know, you think about when I go back to 1991 when it was just Prozac. It what um, you know we didn't have Paxil yet. We didn't have Zoloft, and we also didn't have them being given to kids. So ultimately we did, and that, you know, we didn't have social media like we have today. We had to literally get on a plane and demand meetings. Um, We were working with members of Congress. You know, at that time there were some other drug safety things that were happening like Biox and Avandia that were, you know, ultimately pulled. But there was a lot more in investigation into like the ties from industry. Um, They called the FDA, you know, there are a lot of congressional hearings where they made um, the FDA management come sit before them and answer questions. And so it was, you know, during that whole process um, that really took a lot of time. It took a lot of energy, money, because to get on a plane, um, you know, it's, it took every part of our bodies and also to like connect with all these other families that have mm-hmm. also lost loved ones as well. Okay. Um, now as a member of a, the a consumer rep on this committee, um, you've seen the development of other drugs come forth. One that was in particular was interesting is uh, Chantix. Um, I was reading about this. This is um basically a way to stop smoking, if I'm not correct, right? Correct. Um, I have a good, very good fraternity brother that took Chantix, and he had some issues with it. Um, he was he was a pretty um, two-pack-a-day smoker, um, but he had it. But I noticed that you had uh, a run-in with the uh, – pharmaceutical industry regarding Chantix. Tell us about that. What what happened there? Sure. This is one of my favorite stories. So, um, well, first of all, you know, as you were saying with your friend and he had some experiences, well, little did, you know, does the public know that that drug did have a black box um, psychosis, um, psychiatric warning on it that it can make some people violent, some people hallucinate, all of that. Well, and there was also at that time over almost 3,000 lawsuits against Pfizer 
for um, for that drug, whether it's caused somebody to like kill somebody, um, kill themselves, mm-hmm. whatever. Well, during that process, um, Pfizer was able to shut all of you know they settled all those cases, and they also um, shut were able to shut up the the victims so they could never tell their story again in public, as well as the experts that were reviewing the documents and. Mm-hmm. They were all never were able to, you know, and and the lawyers. I also blame some of those lawyers that they didn't work hard enough to get those um, in, internal company documents made public because they belong to the public. Um, so that all happened, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, Pfizer goes to the FDA, and they now have a new study that was conducted over in Europe called the Eagle study that was basically said, you know, it was a real world open label study that these drugs do not have, do not, aren't deemed and shouldn't have the warning, the psychiatric warning. Well, yes. um, So they were coming back to FDA to review this data. And um, I also have to say that there was only like another year left on patent and, you know, a drug with, black box warning um, has different kind of sales mechanisms or advertising rules than one that doesn't. So there's a lot of business, you know, reasons for going back to the FDA. So I was um, actually looking forward to being a member on that committee Mm -hmm. so that I could ask some of these questions. I wanted to know why aren't we hearing, like, where are all the victims? I want to hear their stories. I want to hear from the, um, the experts or the lawyers that were inside the files and had those documents. What did those documents say? What did the clinical trials say? Uh, but I think it was on a Thursday. The hearing was going to be the next Tuesday. I got a call from the FDA that basically it had come to their attention um, that I was not going to be able to be on the committee because I had a quote unquote intellectual bias. And, uh, I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, I, I'm like, well, I don't even know what an intellectual bias means that I'm, right. you know, I have a, and basically that I have a point of view. And then I remember specifically saying to them, because, you know, everyone on that committee, you know, there's a lot of um, advisory, there are academics that are looking just at the clinical trials. And a lot of those, that committee is actually stacked with people who have a, the bias of another drug on the market. Let's just get more drugs on the market. So that's an intellectual bias. If you're going to tell me that safety is an intellectual bias. And I remember specifically telling them, if you consider safety an intellectual bias, I will always have an intellectual bias and you do not want me on your committee. Well, so I said that and then I, um, more importantly, I'm like, all right, well, since I can't be on the committee, um, I, I would like to be, I would like to make some comments to the committee during the open public hearing. And I would like to, you know, obviously I missed the deadline to come speak, but I would like to be on the, um, be in one of the members to speak in the public hearing. And they put me on, they put me on hold and there was like probably 10 people in the room. And I was thinking, Oh, I wonder what they're saying. I would love to have been Mm -hmm. a little um, bug on the wall. And they, um, so they came back and said, yes, that I could come and make a comment during the open public hearing, but they would start the meeting by saying that there, that you, one of our members 
today was dismissed, a recuse, they called it, from being on the committee for today's decision because of having an intellectual bias. So they, they started the meeting uh, that way. And then I still came. And all, you know, the bummer part was I got three minutes like everybody else, but at least I got to ask the questions, which is what the FDA should have done. Like, mm-hmm. if, if I'm sorry, but like knowing, and I really truly believe that, um, that, Pfizer saw what happened with the antidepressants where it was like literally hundreds of people at these hearings telling their stories. They had lawyers coming that were representing victims whose families um, have lost somebody who were like, put me out of business, do the right thing and warn. So they had seen what these documents were, right? So, you know, I think Pfizer learned from that and that's why they shut them all up. They were going to make sure that nobody could come and tell their story. Um, but the whole time I kept thinking, really, like the FDA should be asking these questions. Like I know it didn't happen in a double-blinded placebo-controlled study, but this is all information that should go into decision-making. But it didn't. And at the end of the day, the committee voted to remove the black box psychiatric warning. And that is what happened in an unprecedented move by the FDA. They've never, like black box warnings, it takes a lot to put one on. And this was one where they took it off. And almost immediately, I know doctors that that, like the days after they got calls and their sales reps from Pfizer came in and told their doctors that this, um, the FDA found that the psychiatric black box suicide warning was not warranted and they removed it. So I think about all these doctors and unsuspecting public that have no idea the real backstory of how that warning got removed. And um, again, that just tells me that Information that the FDA gets should come from a lot of different places. And this should have been a piece of the puzzle before they decided to remove the warnings. Mm. Okay. With, with your history of working on uh, a committee with the FDA and now Pfizer, how does that connect to today's environment regarding COVID? Um vaccines. I mean, there's got to be some overlap, especially, and then what, what happened, um, do you think happened with this approval process with Pfizer uh, and their vaccines? Can you link it together and see how does this all work out today? Yeah, you know, um, that's a good question. So what I have noticed um, in my committee and most of the drugs that are coming before my committee are using some kind of fast tracking mechanism, like a breakthrough therapy or, you know, um, or fast tracking. So basically it allows them to go to market with because there's an unmet need. So they're using these like unmet needs to do less clinical trials to get a drug on the market. And so that's how I kind of immediately saw this um, with the COVID vaccines. Like um, when they had emergency use authorization, I'm like, okay, what is that? So then I started seeing that it was really basically another fast tracking mechanism. Then when you go back to the original and you start going, wait, this is only a couple months worth of data that they're going to get this approved. And then they, allowed the, um, for whatever I still, it will never make sense to me for ethical reasons. They allowed the placebo group 
to get the vaccine. So they basically wipe out the control group. And I mean, then you had all the marketing kicking in and the government putting it out there and using. So that's really where I start seeing this whole idea of like fast tracking and even like the FDA holding um, these advisory committees on the COVID vaccines. I have basically, I believe I've spoke at almost every one of the, um, the FDA ones um, since the COVID vaccines, or at least I try to, mm. um, to, you know, give my opinions of what they're doing. But um, I do think this, the public has no idea what, what that all means, like the clinical trials and being like fast tracked. I mean, I think, you know, we're starting to wake up with it. And I think that's the good news of COVID vaccines is it's shining a light on some of these issues and maybe helping them even like the medical community and people to wake up to a different, like, what does FDA approval really mean? Um, but, you know, I also think about the connection with the idea that these companies can't be sued, right? And right. held accountable. So when I know what I saw with Pfizer and their attitude, you know, their like attitude towards um, how, how they operate clinical trials, how they've um, hidden, hidden or recoded um, things that had happened, the harms that had happened in the clinical trials, and the importance of lawsuits that were able to get into those trials so that we could actually see what was really going on behind the scenes. When I look at this and go, wait, you mean they're fast-tracking and they can't be sued and we have no control group? You know, you, it was just one thing after the next that you're like, how do we even know? Oh, and then then you throw in marketing and everybody's saying the using the words, which to me, um, and you started it out by saying empty, I'd like their marketing slogans. It's an empty phrase, safe mm -hmm. and effective. I don't even know what that means anymore, but it used to mean something. So anyways, I put, that's how I link that. And that was probably those things were the red flags that my, you know, immediately um, uh, they went up. Well, I mean, you're talking about fast tracking and, and it just occurred to me that do you remember when uh, the 21st Century CARES Act was passed and Obama signed it, President Obama signed it, I think a week before he left office and it went into effect. And I was really critical of that uh, piece of legislation. Uh, one, the votes, how fast it moved through committees. And then they actually the way they were designed for vaccine development was just more fast tracking uh, other drugs and devices. And it came back to me and said, wait a minute, this might be where this set up, they knew they were going to get something. This is all pharma led. This is, this is GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer, Merck, just pushing this thing through so they can get ready for something new coming forward. Guess what? Now we have COVID. Now we're going to have other vaccines. And it's just, this is just a sham of what is happening. And the public has probably no idea. They don't make, they don't want to connect the dots. They don't want to go above their own opinions that, oh, what doctors say um, must be good for us. You know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, one other thing I want to talk about, 
I know we we could spend four or five hours here, but we can't. Um, one, you've got a birthday party to go to in your honor. Uh, two, two, I've got some other some other interviews to conduct here, but I wanted to talk about um, a concept of pharma influence in the FDA. And that started, I believe, back in 1992 when they started allowing uh, money from uh, to be funneled from pharma into the FDA. And I think it's, uh, you mentioned something in uh, um, an email the other day that uh, PDUFA is about to be renewed again, I believe. Is that correct? Is that, correct. it has to be renewed every five years? Yep, it's um, Prescription User Prescription Drug User Fee Act, PADUFA. There's also one called GADUFA and MADUFA. I love all the acronyms, but that's for like devices and that's for generics. And I and I know there's a biologics and there's the obviously the prescription drugs. And it's a um, it's a must pass legislation every single fi- or every five years. So what's happening right now, and it, you know, in the beginning, it, the whole idea came, you know, back, like you mentioned in 1992, that we needed um, the FDA, it, they were, get, Congress was getting a lot of pressure saying it was, you know, like the AIDS crisis, it's taken too long for the FDA to review drugs, like we need, we need to do a better job, so we're going to put more resources, okay, so now fast forward, the F, you know, and obviously taxpaying dollars, um, mm-hmm. you know, with every application with a drug, um, you know, to get approval, they put a fee on it. And that is, um, so basically, you know, it's like a pay to play um, mm-hmm. in my mind or who's guarding the hen house, um, the fox guarding it. And at one point, and then, so it's, and they write it, they sit down with the FDA and they being the industry and they say, here's what we want. It's kind of a negotiations between the two then it eventually goes to Congress because it has to get put into like bill format and then get signed off. Um, and that is an opportunity that we've always took it as consumer activists or whatnot, that we could throw some drug safety legislation in there, like how to make it better. But one of the things that we asked for a couple of years ago is like the, the public needs to be have a seat at the table so we can hear what's going on and not have and be a part of the negotiating. I always say that um, we got a little, you know, like a Thanksgiving, there's the adult table and the kid table. Like we're all at the kid table. Like we're not at the big people's table. And um, that is something that I think we need to demand. And even more importantly, like I remember one idea that was out there and um, was uh, this concept of put this all into a general fund and not and then let it get, you know, if you're going to collect money from the FDA because we need, you know, the tax, otherwise everything's going to be taxpayer paid. Don't have it go right to the FDA because, you know, that becomes right there like a um, conflict of interest because mm-hmm. um, who's really the customer? Um, you know, it's supposed to be the public health or is it their customer really the FDA, uh, the drug companies and seeing how they can help. And, you know, it seems like the whole system is set up to make it easier for them. And then, but it's told to the Congress and members of the public, oh, we need to do this because we need to do it faster. We need to, you know, do it better. And I'm not really sure it is. So right now we are going through it. Um, it's and legislation is happening. I would encourage everybody to go and see what it is. Um, but really, it's basically all about fast tracking. 
And it's, you know, there's all these drugs that come onto the market really fast, but the FDA doesn't go back and demand like the clinical trials or the safety um, and to have the ability if they is some, there is a drug that does have um, a negative effect that you could actually have some teeth and have the FDA be able to pull it off the market. That doesn't happen. And, you know, I mean, obviously looking at what's happened with the COVID vaccines, that's another whole can mm -hmm. of worms. But I, you know, it's always like I say, look, there's a squirrel, you know, and they're, everybody's over here. And meanwhile, this is all going to happen and we're all going to, and nobody's paying attention to it. And we're going to all live with it mm. come once it's a, um, an official signed bill by Biden later this year. Yeah. Okay. Um, in closing here, how do people, you, you're the consumer rep. How do people contact you if they have any questions or what to do? Do you have ways of, and do you have any advocacy organizations that people need to be aware of uh, so they can go out there and um, follow along? Um, yep. What do you have? Uh, so for me personally, I have Kim at WoodyMatters.com, Woody Matters. Um, and then I also have KimWitzak.com. So it has some other things that I've done, mm -hmm. um, as well as my Twitter. Twitter's a great way. Um, that's where I like to, or at least I, I use it right now because um, it's a place I hope we can keep keep it going. Right. Um, the, and we should be able to because it's freedom of speech. Uh, but then also some organizations that I work with, most of the people that I, I'm a part of this um, consortium of um consumer, public, patient safety groups, um, that none of us take money from pharmaceutical industry. Okay. So um, one is USA Patient Network, and I can give you the, the website for that. And um, so that's a great place. Okay, good. Us. Well, wonderful. Um, I think I'm going to have to bring you back um, as we move forward with this FDA stuff, because... Um, I'm going to dig digging deep into the clinical trial stuff. I've got uh, Brooke Jackson coming on in a couple of weeks. Great. Um, and her lawsuits in regards to um, U.S. government and Pfizer. Um, but uh, I really appreciate you being here. Um, it's time flies. We're already almost 45 minutes into this thing. And um it's really informative. I think the public really needs to understand the FDA is one big, huge federal agency, but it's overseen by the HHS. Um, and you got CDC, you got HRSA, and you got all these other agencies all tied together. And I'm going, holy cow, this is huge. But the public needs to understand what this is all about and how it's affecting our lives. So, and I want to say one last thing on that. Sure. I was shocked through my advocacy work to learn that doctors in med school don't learn how the FDA process works. And so if our doctors don't know and the public doesn't know, we're in big trouble. Mm. We're the ones that will pay the ultimate price for that lack of not knowing. That's right. That's right. So... Okay, you've been watching and listening to the Right on Point podcast. It's a candid discussion of your civil liberties, issues, and your legal rights with your government. We discuss what no one else will by digging deep into the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program 
the countermeasures injury compensation program, legalities of the COVID pandemic, and what's happening in our global community. I want to thank my guest today, Kim Witsack, and thank you, the many viewers and listeners of this program. As I leave you today with the following message, keep learning, keep challenging yourself, and always, always question authority. Have a good day, everyone. You have been listening to the Right on Point podcast with your host, Wayne Rohde.